Good morning. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's wonderful. Great to be here. We're going to be reading this morning and studying in Philippians, the second chapter. So if you would turn there with me, that would be wonderful. And we'll read our passage this morning as we stand for the reading of the word of God. Going to be reading verses 1 through 13 this morning, but focusing our message on verses 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. And so, Father, we thank you that you have inspired your word, every jot and every tittle, from the law will remain, every word shall stand, every word breathed out by you upon human authors to say exactly what you meant them to say, every syllable, every accent mark, everything, Lord, is from you. And now we come as hearers, but not hearers only, but also doers of your word. Give us hearts that are ready to believe, ready to apply, ready to obey, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated, please. The title of this morning's message is, We Can Work It Out. We Can Work It Out. Focusing on Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. This life that we live as believers, and I'm speaking now to those who are true believers in Jesus Christ, this life that we live as believers is called the Christian life. It's called the Christian life because it begins when a person receives the imparted life of Jesus himself. 
A person believes the gospel message, receives Jesus as Savior and as Lord, and at that very moment, life is given to that person. And that person receives eternal life, not just life that lasts forever, but a quality of life, a, a kind of life called eternal life, the very life that Jesus himself possesses and has always possessed from all of eternity. We have that life now. And that's when the Christian life begins. It's the best possible life, there's no doubt. But it's also a challenging life. It, it, it's a difficult life at times. We face, 1 John 2 tells us, the opposition of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We face, Galatians 6 tells us, the opposition of our own flesh, our own fleshly nature. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These things are in opposition to one another so that we cannot do the things that we would. We face opposition from an unseen enemy called the devil and all of his hosts, his minions. As it tells us in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against the powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so these three areas of opposition for the believer, the world, and the flesh, and the devil, make this life that we've received, even though it is eternal life, make it challenging, make it difficult at times. But Jesus is victorious, and that we are certain of. There was a cartoon that expressed the challenges of, of living this life we have in Christ. It, it showed two butterflies that were talking about the wonderful thing that had happened to them. They used to be caterpillars, but now they're butterflies. And one of the butterflies said to the other one, well, it looks like we made it from larva to pupa to adult, but it sure wasn't easy. And that's true of the Christian as well. We make it from non-Christian or pre-believing non-Christian to new believer to adolescent believer and hopefully to adult and mature believer but it sure wasn't easy there was a challenge along the way can I get an amen? amen so how did the butterfly do it how did they become a butterfly from a, a caterpillar how does the the new Christian become a mature believer uh, someone who's you know more like Jesus than they were the day they believed well it's the Lord there's no doubt. God enabled the butterfly. God enables the Christian. And that which is impossible for us is possible with God. Our focus will be verses 12 and 13 this morning, but we had to read the first 11 verses because the first 11 verses help us establish the context. And you can't read Philippians 2 without reading verses 1 through 11. They're golden, golden passages of Scripture. And in verses 1 through 4, we read a description of how we're to treat one another. Notice the text, with like-mindedness. Notice the text, having the same love, being of one accord, being of one mind. Not living selfish lives, not doing anything through selfish ambition or conceit. It's not for us, but it's for others. 
and in loneliness of mind, actually esteeming other believers to be better than ourselves. Not that they are better, but we esteem them to be better. We, we think that way about others. And of course, if we learn to think that way about others, we're going to act that way toward others. But if we fail to think that way about others, then we will also fail to act that way toward others. And we're not to look only for our own things, but also for the interests of others. And then in verses 5 through 11, we have the glorious description of the way Jesus Christ served us. And in the same way that he served us, we're commanded to love and serve one another. So this is the glorious passage which theologians call the kenosis passage of the New Testament, the emptying passage of Jesus. He emptied himself of the free exercise of his divine attributes as he lived in eternity as the eternal word, as the eternal son, before he ever became a human being, before there was ever the thing called the virgin birth, before he ever became a man, before he was ever named Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins, before he was ever titled Messiah, the one who's the anointed one to deliver us, Before any of those things, he was the eternal word, and he left that. He laid that aside voluntarily. All that he had with the Father in eternity, he laid it aside voluntarily to limit himself to a human existence and become one one of us. As the Bible says, the word became flesh, incarnate. In flesh, incarnate, he became flesh and dwelt among us. That happened. He traveled a long distance to make that happen, by the way. I often think of this kenosis passage this way. I think of an anthill sitting over there on the ground somewhere. And man, I just have it in my heart. I want to communicate with those ants real bad. I want to talk to them. And I want them to talk to me. I want to know what's inside of an ant's head. Do ants think? And if they do think, what do they think about? I want to communicate with them because somehow and for some reason I love those ants. And so I decide I want to communicate with them. So I stand over the ant hill and I say, ants? Well, they don't understand my language. They're terrified by my voice. They scurry into the dark places to hide from me. They don't understand me. And I conclude that the only real way for me to communicate with that pile of ants or with any individual ant would be to become an ant. So I go ahead and I sign up. Okay, I'm going to, for a set period of time, become an ant. And I'm going to go into that ant hill and I'm going to learn their language and I'm going to communicate with them and they're going to learn how to communicate with me. Well, if I were to do that, if I was able to do that, the distance that I would have to travel to go from me, human being, to an ant, it's a distance. It's quite a, quite a leap, right? I think it's quite a leap. Quite a distance to travel. But think of the distance that Jesus traveled to go from the eternal word to a finite man dependent upon his father. 
to where now he's the God-man. Think of the distance he traveled just to be here on planet Earth. I submit to you that the distance that Jesus, tra- Jesus traveled to become one of us and to connect with us and relate to us is a far greater distance, an infinitely greater distance than the distance I would have to travel to become an ant or that you would have to travel to become an ant. There's no question about it. And that's what Jesus did. And why did Jesus do it? He did it to reach us. He did it to love us. And he did it to become obedient to the point of death, the death of the cross. And therefore, he has been exalted by his Father. And therefore, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he, Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, that's the kind of love that Jesus loved you and me with. And it's the same kind of love that we're supposed to love one another and consider others with. And whenever we're faced with the difficulty or the challenges of loving someone else, all we need to remember is the distance that Jesus traveled to love us. And from that memory and from that truth, we can gain the spiritual power to live like he did. One of the challenges of living this Christian life is loving others. If I'm ever faced with someone that I need to forgive, that is difficult to forgive, and maybe their offense against me was too great for me to consider forgiving, all I need to do is remember what Jesus had to overcome, if he had to overcome anything, to forgive me. And the distance he traveled to forgive me is far greater than the distance that I'll ever have to travel to forgive another human being. And so we have the moral and the spiritual influence and example of the Lord Jesus to help us to live this Christian life. Now we come to verses 12 and 13. And in these verses, we have the human and the divine side of working out this gospel of Jesus Christ in our own lives. The human and the divine side. Let's read them these verses again, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Verse 12 gives us the human side of things, of working out our salvation. The human side is that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's our responsibility. That's what we have to do. That's what God says we must do. Verse 13 gives us the divine side. For it is God who works in you both to will and and to do for his good pleasure. Well, you know, we're thinking people. We read a passage of scripture. We compare it with other passages that we know in the Bible. We have questions about things. What do these concepts mean? What does it mean that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? What does that mean? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. What verse 12 does not mean is that we are to work for our salvation. 
Verse 12 does not mean that we are to work for our salvation. Notice that Paul the Apostle, in writing to the Philippian church, is writing to believers in Jesus Christ. He would not tell believers in Jesus Christ who had already received salvation, who had already believed the gospel, who had already been saved by grace through faith, and that not of themselves. It was the gift of God that they'd received, who had already received these things. He would not turn around and tell them, now work for your salvation. Because they'd already received it. They'd already been given that gift of salvation. In fact, in this epistle, they'd already been called saints. Saints. Holy ones. Separated ones. Sanctified ones. Saints. They'd already been called saints. They had salvation. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling cannot mean and does not mean work for your salvation. We need to be clear about that as we've just quoted Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Couldn't be any more clear. But we'll add on to that one, Romans 4, 4, and 5. Now to him who works, if I'm working for my salvation, Paul is saying, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. That is, if someone attempts to work for their salvation, just suppose in a theoretical universe, someone could could work for their salvation and receive their salvation because they worked for it. What that would mean is that God was rewarding them, paying them a debt for services rendered. They worked for it. God gives them salvation as a payment. That means that God becomes the debtor of the human being. He owes something to the human being. He owes salvation. Wait a minute now. There's something real wrong with that picture. God being a debtor to human beings, not possible. Not possible. God's not our debtor, never will be, never has been our debtor. He doesn't owe anything to us. It is he who has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. That's what the Bible says. But look at verse 5 in Romans 4. But to him who does not work, that is, does not work for their salvation, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And that's why God has set it up that when we believe the gospel, we receive the gift of eternal life because God cannot be, will not be our debtor. His uh, salvation extended to us is always a gift. You say, well, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, weren't they saved because they worked for it? Weren't they saved because they kept the law and they did all the rules and kept all the commandments correctly? Isn't that why the, the person in the Old Testament was saved? Nope. That wasn't why they were saved. That wasn't how they were saved. In fact, before the law was ever given, hundreds of years before the law was given, There was a man named Abraham. Remember Abraham? Abraham was the father of faith, not just for Gentile or non-Jewish believers, but for Jewish believers. And Abraham one day was was wondering, "How how can I have a son? Or how can I have all these promises through my, my, uh, my offspring when I don't have a son? The only one in my household that could be a qualified candidate, I suppose, would be 
Eliezer, my servant, and he's from Damascus. And the Lord said, well, this one's not going to be your heir. Someone who comes from your own body is going to be your heir. And then the Lord took Abraham outside and he showed him the stars and one of those beautiful black star-filled nights and said, look and see if you can count these stars, Abraham. That's how many your descendants are going to be. And Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed in the Lord. He believed it. He believed what God just said. That's how many your descendants are going to be, Abraham. That's what you're going to have as your offspring. Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Bible says it was imputed to him for righteousness. He received the gift of salvation by faith. He believed it. He believed the good news of what God had said to him. He believed, so to speak, the gospel, the good news that God had given to him. Now, Abraham believed that gospel before the law was given. He believed that gospel before Jesus even came. We say, how could Abraham be saved by grace through faith in the gospel that hadn't even happened yet? Jesus hadn't come. He hadn't died for our sins. He hadn't risen from the dead. How could could Abraham be forgiven like that when Jesus hadn't come? Here's the deal. Salvation, when it happened to an Old Testament person, someone who lived before Christ came, Salvation was always on the basis of grace, always was given as God's gift to someone because they believed the good news, and it's always on the basis of what Jesus would ultimately do, not what he had already done, because Jesus hadn't died when Abraham believed it, but Jesus would die. In other words, the death of Jesus Christ is timeless in its application. It goes backwards in its effect, in saving human beings, and it is current in the 2,000 years ago in its ability to save human beings, and it's future. It's able to save you and me who believe it. That's the timelessness of the gospel. So Abraham, when he believed God's promise, was forgiven on the basis of what Jesus would ultimately do at Calvary. And the Lord said, okay, he believes it, he accepts it, he receives this good news that I've given, he's believed this promise, so I'm going to apply what Jesus is going to do for him in a couple, few thousand years to his account. And he's going to be righteous. So, there you go. We can't work for it. It's given as a gift. So, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, cannot mean we're to work for our salvation, but we're to work out our salvation. So, what does verse 12 actually mean? Well, it means that the the salvation that we've received needs some working out in our real life, in the life we're living. Our salvation needs to be developed in order to be experienced. Our salvation needs to be appreciated and enjoyed in order to be experienced. In other words, we don't just get our ticket to heaven and then live our own independent lives with our ticket to heaven in our back pocket tucked away somewhere and live the way we want to and that's it no no that ticket for salvation that we've got tucked away in our back pocket that needs to be worked out that salvation needs to be developed Uh, and and it's important that we do develop it because God has a plan for each one of our lives it's an incredible plan 
It's a rich plan. It's a personal plan. Like it says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that the Lord has ordained or prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling means to work out with God and find the plan that he has for me and let him fulfill it in my life. Work it out. And at the end of our lives, what we want it to be written or said of us is that we lived our lives according to the will of God. That's how we lived. We worked it out. Ultimately, the goal that the Lord has for us is that we be like his son. That's what he's moving every one of us toward. That's his great game plan, if, if you want to put it in those terms. He wants others that are going to share the characteristics of his own eternal son whom he loves. Remember Jesus at the baptism of John, when John baptized him in the Jordan River, that voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, the father has always been pleased with his beloved son. And he wants more sons and more daughters that he also is pleased with that can join his family. And so he's making us into the image of his son. He wants us to be like Jesus. And so that's what he's doing. And to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling means simply to cooperate with God, to discover his plan for our lives, and allow him to make us year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day, more like Jesus. That's what it's about, to be more like Jesus. That's the big picture. That's the big idea. One commentator suggests that this word, work out your own salvation, the Greek word behind it, is similar to the idea of a silversmith bringing out the purity of silver. Oh, at first it's just raw ore, but it needs to be purified. It's very valuable, but its beauty must be worked out of the silver before you can really discover its true value. The great Bible teacher and commentator Warren Wiersbe says that the verb uh, work out carries the meaning of work to full completion. Work out your own salvation. Work it to full completion. Sort of like working out a problem in mathematics, he says. In Paul's day, he says it was used for working a mine, getting out of the mine all of the valuable ore that is in it. Or working a field so that you can get the greatest uh, possible harvest. And that's what it means to work out our own salvation. Work it out. Develop it. Make it work. Allow God to work uh, his salvation in us with its, all of its intended consequences. Notice that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's one of the reasons why I think it's important to read verses 1 through 11 before we come to verses 12 and 13. Because I don't know about you, but those verses, verses 1 through 4, those are daunting verses. I wish I could say I am always living unselfishly. I wish I could say I'm always living humbly. I wish I could say I always have a low mind in relationship to myself and a high mind in relationship to others. I wish I could say that I'm only focused on the interest or primarily focused on the interests of others and not of myself, but that's not the case. So when I'm faced with verses like that, it makes me 
fear and tremble. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This, this Christian life is a daunting task. It's above us. It's higher than we are. And it's a difficult thing. And I would suggest that without a deep respect for God and a dependence upon his Holy Spirit, we will fail all or most of the time. That's why it's important that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we need a deep and profound respect for God in these things and a dependence upon the Spirit to be filled of the Spirit. So verse 12 is the, is the human side of things. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But now we come to verse 13 and we come to the divine side for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. This is God's part. Our part is important because we're cooperating with God in it. But God's part is absolutely necessary because apart from him we can't do anything. We need him. We need a divine side. There are two things Verse 13 says, God provides for the believer who is seeking to work out his salvation. Please note these. Two things provided for us. Number one, the willingness to do God's will is provided us. And number two, the power to do God's will. Work out your own salvation, fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will. He gives us the want to. He gives us the desire. He gives us the willingness. It is God who works in you to will, number one, thing he provides, God's side, and to do his good pleasure. He gives us the power to accomplish his own purposes in us. He gives us the willingness. He gives us the power. He gives us the willingness. He gives us the power. That's what God does. That's the divine side of things. And without the divine side of things, we can't work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not going to happen. But if he gives me the willingness, it can happen. If he gives me the power, it can happen. I can actually become more like Jesus. I can actually discover his purpose for my life and live a life that is to the glory of God. If he does it in me, it can happen. So, I'll regress. I'll regress historically in my own life back to 1973. My own testimony is that in 1969 at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California, as a junior in high school, I heard, I think, the gospel preached for the first time. I grew up in church, but I don't think I ever heard the message of grace and the fact that Jesus died for me on purpose and rose from the dead, that he's alive. If you receive Jesus, you'll receive eternal life, and you can know that you're actually saved. I don't think I'd ever heard that message before. And so when that message was preached that, that day in November of 1969, I responded to the message. And there were pretty radical and sudden changes that occurred in my life. Good changes. But I never really developed. I never really worked out my own salvation. Whether I actually had the salvation or not at that point, only God knows. It felt like I did at the time. 
And the momentum of that decision lasted for several months. I was spiritually higher than a kite. You know, it was great. Floating on eagle's wings. You know, being cared for by the Lord. But you know, I was in high school. And I was playing baseball. And I was wrestling. And I was playing football. And I ran for the office of president of the senior class and somehow I won the election and so I'm thrown into the midst of all the stuff that goes on with high school and I just decided to go back to my old lifestyle and during those next few years you would not have been able to recognize me as a Christian but on the inside I was struggling because now I knew that every single thing I was doing was wrong and out of the will of God I knew it in my heart. And whenever I would see a Christian, one of those guys that were born again, we used to call them Jesus freaks back in those days. Whenever I'd see a Jesus freak, they'd be walking that way. I'd go over and walk this way. I didn't want anything to do with them because the light was shining too bright on my heart. I didn't want anything to do with them. But during those several years where I was, you know, out of the will of God completely, the Lord would knock on my door and I would have some sort of a re re resurgence in my heart that I really wanted to do it right. So I would make an effort. I would stop doing this and I would stop doing that and I would start doing this and I would start doing that and man, my momentum lasted maybe a week. And then I'd fall flat on my face again. And this happened a number of times during those three years. Finally, at the end of those months and years, the Lord brought me very sovereignly to a place where I was ready to throw up my hands and give up and surrender. A friend of mine came over. He'd been a Christian uh, for about five months. I knew I was going to see him that day. I hadn't seen him in five months. I knew I was going to see him that day. He came over. We began to talk. He started pulling out his little red pocket New Testament out of his pocket he was going to share with me. I said, you don't need to share with me. I know what it needs to happen. He said, well, let's pray. I said, okay, let's pray. Now, this was the supernatural part of the whole thing. I knew it was time to yield to the Lord. I knew that for me, being a Christian and walking as a believer and being exposed as a believer coming out as a believer, so to speak. I knew that was inevitable. I knew it was going to happen. But I was terrified at this point with the prospects of it. I was terrified because of all of those failures. I didn't want to start and then fail again. I didn't want to start and fail again. So I was terrified. And so when it was time to pray with my friend, I prayed. I didn't know what I was praying. I knew the heart in my prayer, and I remember vaguely the words, and I'll try to piece them together for you a little bit, but this is how the prayer went. The prayer went like this. God, I want to I wanna live for you. And if you'll give me a desire and a power to live for you, I'll live, with, I'll live for you the rest of my life because I'm afraid. That's basically what I prayed. I didn't know 
anything else to pray except to be honest. I was afraid of failure. And I wanted to do it. I wanted to live for him. But I didn't think I could. In fact, I knew I couldn't. So if you'll give me the desire and the power to do it, I'll, I'll live for you the rest of my life. And boom, heaven came on top of me at that moment. That's the day, that's the moment, August 5th, 1973, when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. You've probably heard that phrase. You've probably read it if you're a Bible reader. I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon me in response to that prayer. Now, here's the cool thing. I didn't know Philippians 2.13. I never read it. And I started reading through the Bible at that point and being aggressive in my Bible reading. And I came to Philippians 2, and it didn't take me long to figure out that's the prayer I prayed. I prayed that prayer. It's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I prayed a prayer that was in the Bible, and I didn't even know it was in the Bible. And that's why I was filled with the Holy Spirit, I think, because I was praying the, the very will of God. And since then, I mean, that was the beginning right? All those years ago, that was the beginning. But there have been many, many, many times when I've been faced with the same obstacle, a failing heart, a weakened life, low ambition, low motivation, no power. And I've been able to come back again and again to Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And ask him once again, Lord, if you'll give me the willingness and if you'll give me the power, I'll keep living for you. And he pulls me up out of that mud hole I've gotten myself into. He pulls me out of the miry pit and out of the miry clay. He'll do it, and he does it. It's the key. Because it's God who works in us to will his good pleasure. That means that the motivation to accomplish God's purpose in my life comes from him. Living the Christian life. You know, I used to tell my kids growing up, life is hard and then you die. You know, sort of half kidding, but half serious. I mean... Really, where does the motivation come from to live this life? It comes from the Lord. He works in us to will his good pleasure. And in living out the Christian life, I mean, look at our responsibilities as a man. If you're married, your responsibility is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And hopefully your desire is to love your wife and you're in love with her. But I need power. I need motivation. In order to do this, where does it come from? Well, God works in me to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, what do you do if you're in a place where you have no willingness? In fact, you don't even have any willingness to pray. (laughs) Man, you take it back one more step. And this is what I've discovered. Lord, I can ask you even to help me be willing to be willing. 
His desire to make me willing and to give me his willingness is so broad and so deep that he'll even help me be willing to be willing. All I need to do is mutter some kind of a prayer that is somewhere in my heart and he'll come. And I can tell you my testimony is that every time I've prayed either for the willingness to be willing or for the willingness itself over the years, every single time I've prayed that way, he has never once let me down he has answered that prayer every single time why because he is faithful and he always acts in in accordance with his own nature and his own promises so i need simply to come to come to him all who call upon the name of the lord shall be saved draw near to me and i'll draw near to you These are the Bible verses that are behind all of this. But God is also the one who works in us not only for motivation, but also to do his good pleasure, which means he gives us the power to accomplish his purpose in my life. Though this command is the commandment that provides his promise to enable me, his promise to enable you, it's right here in the verse. He works in us to do his good pleasure. And here's something that's important to note. When God gives us a command, when God makes a command and gives us that command, his commandment is the promise that he will enable us if we trust him. His command is the promise of his enabling. It is. He says... Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Be merciful and you'll receive mercy. His command is to forgive and to be merciful. Well, that means that embedded within that command is the promise that he'll give me the resources to do it if I'll trust him. If I'll step out in faith, if I'll love the unlovable, if I'll forgive the unforgivable, if I'll be merciful to those that don't deserve it and nobody deserves it and me neither. If I'll do it, if I'll obey him, embedded within that command is the promise that he'll empower me if I trust him. My mind immediately goes to the story of Jesus going into the synagogue on that day on the Sabbath. And there was a man in the synagogue that day that had a withered hand. It was the Sabbath day, so all of the religious leaders who had a very perverted view of how to keep the Sabbath... They were watching Jesus because they knew there was a man in the synagogue that had a malady, a condition that needed to be healed. And there was Jesus who had amply demonstrated that he was willing to heal anybody of all kinds of condition. And they knew that when these two got together in the same room, the human need and Jesus, that the human need was going to be met by Jesus. And they were okay with that, but they didn't want it to be done on the Sabbath day because of their perverted perverted view of the Sabbath. So they were watching him closely. The Bible says that Jesus looked on them with anger in his heart. Man, I wonder what that look looked like. Wow. Grieved at the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was made as whole as the other one. 
Now wait a minute. Here's a man with a withered hand. You just told me, Jesus, what's up anyway? You just told me to stretch out my hand. I don't do that. I don't stretch out my hand. But you see, Jesus is the one that said it. And because he commanded it, embedded in that command was the promise for enabling. Stretch out your hand. And so looking at Jesus, his eyes on him, realizing the one who said it, he took a step of faith and started trying. And behold, this hand became as whole as the other one. So it is with all of the commands of God. His commands are the promise of his enablement. Wonderful, wonderful truth. God who works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. I think of Peter who had in his heart so much before Jesus was crucified to be faithful to the Lord, to be loyal to the Lord, to be consistent with the Lord. And Jesus had told Peter and the other disciples, all of you are going to be made to stumble this very night because of me. You're all going to be made to stumble this very night because of me. Peter said, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. So, you know, Pete had sort of a elevated view of himself at this point. That's when Jesus said to Peter, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the cock crows twice, you will have denied me three times. Jesus then heard Peter say, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the disciples said the same thing. Of course, we know the story. Peter did deny the Lord, and all of the other disciples fled the scene as well. So they weren't courageous either. They had the want to in their flesh, but they had no power to do it in their spirit. They couldn't even stay awake for one hour when Jesus prayed in the garden. And Jesus told them the reason why. The spirit is indeed willing, he said to them, but the flesh is weak. That's why you can't stay awake even for one hour. You can't even do that. So fast forward, Jesus is crucified. He's risen from the dead. Fifty days later, the day of Pentecost comes. The Spirit of God comes upon the early church, gives them power to be Christ's witnesses. And Pentecost, which is the name for that day, Acts chapter 2, is the story of how weak men who were willing, became mighty men and powerful men, able to do what they couldn't do before, remain faithful. And Peter that very day stood up and preached to the very opponents that he had been afraid of earlier. In a very bold way, read the sermon in Acts 2 if you really want to have your mind blown. 
I think of Paul the Apostle who was in the city of Corinth. He'd had a rough go of it in his life as an apostle up to that point. But now he's in Corinth on his second missionary journey. He'd already been stoned. He'd already been beaten. He was left for dead outside of the city of Lystra. I mean, he'd really had a tough time. Physical persecution, ostracism from others, all kinds of things going on. Now he's in Corinth, a very violent, ungodly, evil city. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He goes to bed one night, and the Lord speaks to Paul in a vision that night and says to him, Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. I have many people in this city. That was the very thing that Paul needed to hear is that I'm with you and I'm for you, Paul. I want you to stay in this city and I want you to speak in my name. And on the basis of the strength that he received from the word of Jesus, Paul continued in Corinth for another 18 months, starting a church, teaching the word, making disciples among them. It was God's willingness working in Paul that enabled him to stay in Corinth. And the power that he received from the Lord enabled him to stay in Corinth. So we need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but we need to trust the God who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure to make it happen. So just a couple more thoughts and then we're done. What about your calling? Some people are afraid of discovering their calling. Some people are afraid of discovering their calling because they feel like it's going to mean taking radical steps in order to fulfill it, and they're not wanting to make those radical steps. Even in the Christian community, we have this myth called retirement. You know, when you're about my age, you start thinking about that myth that starts getting talked about a little bit more in the circles that you find yourselves in. You know, we, we're worried about cancer and its dangers. We're worried about all kinds of other physical threats, heart disease, and so on. But retirement will kill a man faster than cancer. And it happens. They get depressed, they go into the tank, and pretty soon their life, which had so much promise, is cut short because they had no purpose. But what happens if a guy is 65 years old? What does he do? Does he think, well, it's just time to lay down and take a nap for the rest of my life? Or does he rediscover God's purpose for his life? I might be here for another 15, 20, 25 years. Oh my. (laughs) What am I going to be when I grow up? And then discovering that. What about that? Are you afraid of your calling? Afraid of discovering it? Remember, it's God who works in you to will his good pleasure. He'll give you the willingness if you'll step out in faith and he'll give you the power to go for it. What about a life-dominating sin? There are many things that can get a hold of a person these days, and even Christians 
Paul said in Romans 6 that even a Christian who yields the members of his body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness will be dominated by that sin and become a prisoner to it. What about that? What about life-dominating sin? Can't let it go? Afraid to deal with it? Remember, it's God who works in you to will his good pleasure and to do his good pleasure. Getting rid of that life-dominating sin and allowing the Lord to work in that area of life is the most wise thing that a person can do. Because a person thinks that they're free when they're practicing life-dominating sins, and they're actually in prison. They're not free at all. But once the, the sin is gone, and once the sin is being controlled by the Holy Spirit, and believe me, it can be a long process to gain real freedom. It can mean a lot of things, depending upon the sin. But once the effort is expended and once God is trusted in and once his willingness is obtained and once his power to do it is received, over time, eventually that freedom becomes very, very precious. What if there's an issue of obedience in your life right now? You know you're supposed to do this thing but you're struggling with it because you don't feel willing to do it. And you know you don't have the power to get it done. Again, the Lord will work in you if you'll trust him. If you'll just confess your disobedience or your struggle with this thing. Just be honest with the Lord. I know what you're telling me to do, Lord. I know what you want me to do. But frankly, I don't want to. I don't want to. But I know that you'll give me the want to. So would you help me with my willingness and give me the want to work in me and watch what he'll do. Watch what he'll do. And then he'll give you the power to actually go forward with it. We needed verse 13 in order to do verse 12. We can't work out our own salvation with fear and trembling without verse 13, without their divine resources that God has promised, his willingness and his power. Amen? Amen. I just wanted to put some wheels on all this for us today. It's, these passages have meant so much to me over the years, and they continue to mean so much to me. God's word. We love God's word. Amen? Let's pray. We thank you for the power of your word, Lord, because behind your word is you. And you're the God that keeps promises and has the power to fulfill them. There's nobody like you. And we are your sheep. We are the people of your pasture. And you are God. You're the all-knowing one. You're the all-powerful one. You're the all-wise one. And all of the resources are in you. And you've placed all of your resources in Christ. And you've placed the believer in Christ. And so we're complete in him. Help us in our willingness, Lord. Help us to remember to be dependent upon you to help us with our willingness and to be dependent upon you
to enable us with your power. And we thank you for it. And as we're just in a moment, just a a few brief moments in an attitude of prayer, as this message is being shared, there are probably issues, situations that you've been thinking about in your own minds. Just in the quietness of your own heart, between you and the Lord, talk to him about that right now. And give it to him. Trust him again for his willingness. Trust him again for his power. And then go home and write it down somewhere. Put a date on it. And pay attention to how the Lord is going to answer that prayer over time. Thank you, Lord.